Welcome to On DOD on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. Now, your host, Jared Serbu. Glad you're with us this week. Our focus this time is on acquisition in the Defense Department. And we're going to begin the hour with a part of the acquisition process that gets comparatively little attention, or at least public attention in the grand scheme of things. That's the testing process. The independent Pentagon office that tests major weapon systems to make sure they're ready for battle is changing its approach to cybersecurity. The updated procedures, just issued by DOD's Office of Operational Test and Evaluation, include several changes, including a new emphasis on the technology supply chain. They also try to step away from a check-the-box approach to cybersecurity testing. And, as you'll hear, that's a theme among some of the broader changes dot e is trying to make, transitioning to a more ongoing testing process, even perhaps combining operational testing with developmental testing, in at least some cases. Our guest for this is Robert Beeler. He is DOD's Director of Operational Test and Evaluation. We asked him to join us to talk about the new cybersecurity testing procedures he's just signed out. Dr. Beeler, thanks for doing this. Um, Just to start us off, let's talk about some of the whys behind the new guidance, first of all. I mean, aside from just the the basic fact that everything cyber-related changes very, very quickly, Mm. why, why did you feel the procedures were due for an update? I mean, just take us through some of the key things that you're changing, addressing, that, that differ from the last edition. Right. Okay, let me just begin by saying that, uh, you know, my job is to make sure that I do an independent and objective assessment of uh, DOD weapon systems. And uh, I've been in this business and testing for quite a while. I've been in the military, and the last five years or so I spent in immersed in the cyber and software. So I've, I've come to the closure very quickly that uh, our weapon systems are really defined by software. You know, it is software is the build, building material of choice, and we have to be able to make sure that we do a proper assessment of that from a cybersecurity standpoint as much as functionality of the software. So over the last 20-plus years, uh, this office has continuously updated the uh, software guidance that we want our folks to test towards. But, uh, you know, we've got to keep up with the state of the art. This is changing. The software uh, is changing so quickly, and it's uh, making our weapons so much better. Uh, And on the other hand, uh, our adversaries are doing the same thing. So the guidance I I put forth was to look at uh, some new areas that haven't been discussed before in the DOT&E oversight guidance. uh, uh, And the first one is basically... um, the, looking at the supply chain of the system of the mission system, uh, if you look at all the things that touch the cyber uh, software of a weapon system, it gets pretty large pretty quickly. And they may not all be using the same standards of security that the main contractor may be, for example. And my feeling is it could very well be the uh, soft underbelly of of cybersecurity for our weapon system. So the guidance is to look at the supply chain and to make sure that you, the program manager, is comfortable with the the cybersecurity of that supply chain. That's one. Uh, The other is to focus on, on, we can't test everything. That's really the main issue we have here. Uh, but we have to be able to make sure that what is really needed to continue to operate is resilient to cyber. And that is, 
it has to be able to recover from a cyber attack and be able to do the mission. And that's one of the other things I'm asking the testers to look at is the, uh, the resilience of the critical capabilities of software on that weapon system. Let me, let me pick up a little bit on that point because the, the previous version had an appendix with a big long list of compliance metrics with, with pointers to all kinds of NIST controls that were supposed to be met during the, the cooperative vulnerability assessment phase. By contrast, I don't think we see the word compliance a single time in the new procedures. What, what, what should we, we read into that? Is, is, are we really seeing more of an emphasis on resilience over compliance? Well, uh, let me, let me, that's a very, very good question. Um, we cannot take a checklist mentality to solve all the cyber problems. You know, we can have compliance, and there's lots of compliance checklists, and uh, I don't want any tester to walk away saying, if I fill all the squares in those compliance checklists, that the system is going to be uh, capable of doing its mission in a cyber-intensive uh, environment. Mm -hmm. Uh, I come from the world of uh, trust but verify. I mean, we can listen to uh, folks say that they've complied with all the checklists. We can listen to contractors saying that the systems are safe and uh, will, cannot be intruded by through the supply chain, for example. Those are very good words. But in the end, it's my responsibility and this office's responsibility to make sure by doing an assessment to make sure that's correct. So. Um, yeah, I, I agree with you. The Annex has all kinds of compliance requirements, but here again, um, some of it, uh, I believe, we have to make sure that we go out and do the assessment physically rather than just writing it off. Let me go back to something you said toward the start, which is which is your point that you, your emphasis on the fact that basically everything the department buys is reliant on, on IT. Th these procedures, I, I'm assuming, they're going to apply to things that are pure IT, like like the electronic health record, and more traditional weapon systems like the F-35 that are very heavily reliant on IT. Mm -hmm. are, are, yeah. Do you approach those things differently from a testing perspective? Uh, absolutely. Uh, let me tell you, begin by saying that uh, on my oversight list of major defense acquisition programs that we're testing against, the list is about 300 plus programs that we have that are on my oversight list. Now every year we do about a third of that in operational testing and we report on that uh, annually to Congress. Uh, but if you look at a, an IT system, uh, we, we can look at it in a much different way than we have to look at cyber software that's embedded in the hardware. They have to be looked at in, uh, in different ways. In the end, we want to make sure that they operate uh, the way they're supposed to operate. But when we have a network, for example, and it touches so many parts, and maybe even into the Internet, the challenges are enormous because there's so many places that there are vulnerabilities. Let me just uh, add a comment about software in general. Mm -hmm. Uh, I like software. I mean, it, it had so much functionality we never have had before. And as a, you know, I, I, at one time in my career, I was an experimental test pilot, and software really doesn't weigh anything. And when you're talking about airplanes, satellites, or whatever, you want to reduce the weight. But the more software you have, the more capability you have. But also, the more software you have, the more complexity you have. And when you have more complexity, you introduce more vulnerabilities. The, the, we call it the attack surface increases, whether it be software in an IT system or software on the next generation super carrier. 
we have to make sure that we know where those vulnerabilities are. And the challenge we have is the resources we have to do that with. Uh, if I could go into that just a second, I think this is a really important issue. Is right now we have some incredible uh, red teaming uh, individuals and their people that help us look at the vulnerabilities of the weapon systems and, or the IT system for that matter and see what the vulnerabilities are. And we try to find, you know, how would an adversary get into a network or into a system? Now, if you think about how much software we have in this world on our weapon system, and just about every day it's growing by tens of millions, humans just cannot scale to do all that testing. So my thrust is to be able to come up with automated testing, vulnerability discovery, and, and vulnerability patching in an automated way because, you know, individuals just, we just can't scale up with people. So this is a thrust that we're looking at in the Department of Defense to come up with those automated tools. And I can tell you that, I, that these are being developed uh, in the commercial world. And you just have to look at the banking system, the critical infrastructure like electrical power grids. They look at vulnerability discovery 24 by 7. Uh, we have to get there in the department to look at our weapon systems that are software intensive to make sure that we have, we're comfortable that we know what the status of that software is at any given time. That, that seems like a really big change to me in the way DOD thinks about operational test, and especially if the department succeeds in moving toward this more iterative software development model. In, in the frame of mind you're thinking in, does does the operational test process no, you know, become no longer a single point in time OT event, and an OT is continuously ongoing throughout the life cycle of the system. Exactly, uh, that is a, a critical point when you talk about iterative incremental development. We're using names like agile acquisition, DevOps. Uh, there's a lot of names for it, but really, what we're trying to do is get the developers the users and the testers all in the same room at the same time and continuously develop and test and deliver the uh, capabilities that software allow you to have. And, and we want to get to a point at a, in time that we are almost building software at night and testing it during the day. I mean, that's kind of like the end state. And if you look at what the uh, model that they're using in places like Silicon Valley, that's how they develop software. That's where they put it out, and it's really good because they're, they're building it, and they're testing it, and they're, and they're getting it in the field for others to look at very quickly. The, the, and the software, the, the difference between a developer and an operator tester is almost non-existent. Sometimes the developer is the operator. So as we do this iterative incremental development, we want to do development testing and operational testing in an integrated way. However, you know, my responsibility by Title 10 is to make an independent assessment. And I fully believe that we can keep our independence and do testing like that. And I, I will tell you the other thing that we're looking at in Department of Defense on all weapon system, all capabilities, whether it be an IT network or a uh, full-up uh, kinetic weapon system, we want to reduce the time it takes to get the weapon through the acquisition cycle. We want to be at the velocity of relevance, and that means we have to do it quickly. I think right now in acquisition uh, and testing, 
it's about speed. It's about speed of delivery so that we can get it out there before our adversaries come up with the capability. Uh, that, that is really important. And by having the testers, the operator testers, and the developer testers together doing this early and often in the program, that's going to save a lot of time. And you're absolutely right. There's never going to, I don't think we're ever going to see that single point where everything is done, we hand it over to the OTE community, and we go out and test it in an operational environment. We can test it in an operational environment as we're going through the development stages. And that's uh, uh, what we're going to call it is capability-based test and evaluation. And that is the integration of OT and DT. We want to test the capabilities. We want to make sure that we get those capabilities early. And, you know, that includes cybersecurity. Robert Beeler is DOD's Director of Operational Test and Evaluation. We'll talk more about the new cybersecurity testing procedures he's just issued for the department and some of the broader changes he's pushing to the testing process after a quick break. This is On DOD on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm Jared Serbiu. Visit GovEvents.com to find the government and military events that matter to you near you. 70,000 of your colleagues use GovEvents. Shouldn't you? Back on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM, this is On DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. And getting back to our conversation with Robert Beeler, DOD's Director of Operational Test and Evaluation. He's joining us to talk about a new set of cybersecurity testing procedures he's just signed out last month. As he was telling us before the break, part of the goal is to transition the testing process for software into an ongoing process, not just a one-time event. That's going to mean some degree of integration between DOD's testing community and the rest of the participants in the acquisition process, as he said before the break, so that everyone's operating under one roof. How much of a cultural change is this going to be, and, and, and how hard is it going to be to pull off? Because, and, and this may be wrong, but my perception of how a program office traditionally thinks of, of the OT community is like this external oversight force that swoops in at some point in time and critiques their work, and hopefully at some point they go away. This this model you're talking about is pretty different from that. Well, let, let's just start with, we'll just focus on software. Software is never going to die. It's going to continuously grow, and, and it's going to change throughout the life cycle of the program. For example, the uh, F-35 will be around for 40 or 50 years after it gets in the field. That software is going to change continuously, and in the end, I think more capability will come from software upgrades than hardware upgrades. And so we're going to have to come up with a way to continuously, continuously test the software, and that's where the automated testing comes into it. I think we're able to be able to do that in an automated way. We'll be able to get the capabilities out there very, very quickly. As much as you do intend to rely on automation here, you're also going to need smart humans still to, to some degree. And I wonder what your assessment is of, of the current OT workforce in the area of cyber and their, their ability to stay ahead of threats in the way that you want to. Okay, that is a very good question. The, the cyber workforce uh, is inadequate today, and I'll just put that on the table. Uh, it's not that we don't have good people to do cyber testing. We don't have enough of them. Uh, and the kind of people we're looking for uh, that have advanced degrees in computer science, electrical engineering, have experience in software development, software testing, uh, 
everybody wants those people. You know, the competition for those people outside the department is enormous. As I mentioned, I just came from a from a university that uh, had the number one software engineering school in the world, Carnegie Mellon, and the graduates that come out of there, if I can get some of them to come work for me, uh, it's going to be really hard to make to keep them because once they get in and have that talent, have those clearances, they are very valuable on the outside. So. We have to come up, we the Department of Defense have to come up with a new model to attract and retain uh, cyber experts with deep domain understanding of that field. And that's going to be um, not going to be trivial. And the OT community probably needs its own, right? That's not going to be a shared resource considering right. your need for independence. Well, my independence, you're absolutely correct. I am looking for a a workforce of, of operational testers that have that deep domain uh, experience and education. Uh, I would love a cadre of masters and PhDs in electrical engineering and computer science that have done this for many years. That's the kind of workforce I'm looking for. It'll be hard to do that, I believe, in the current environment that we have now. So we have to think of new ways of doing that. And some of those ways could be not actually bring them into the department, but have them available to use on different kinds of contracts. Um, I think that that is a that is one as a very big deal. And I will let me put it to you like this: when it comes to um, our software versus an adversary software, our software science has to be better than our adversary software science, which means we have to have the smartest people we can find to help us do that. Um, we have to figure out a way to inspire the next generation of workers to want to join up and be these cyber warriors and software engineers and mathematicians. And there's a, a, some really good efforts going on right now to inspire high school students to be able to come into this field. and. One in particular is the Air Force Association has got this program called Cyber Patriot where these uh, high school kids come together annually and they compete and have a big cyber competition. And some of the things we're seeing out of that is uh, individuals that are at very young ages that have incredible aptitude for this kind of work. And we want to make this uh, an inspirational opportunity for you know, young kids who come into this career field and see the excitement associated with this. I'm just curious, within the OT world, are there are there particular specialties of cyber expertise that you need, or is it pretty similar to what the department needs more broadly? Me as an OT and E, or as a developer, as a researcher. Well, yeah, within OT and E is really what I mean. Within OT and E, yeah. Well, the the challenge we have uh, in OT and E from an operational uh, assessor of software and cyber is uh, we, we, we normally get uh, journeymen people that actually know how the system is fielded. Uh, and so that may be a challenge, but in the same token, we can take, we need a cross section. We need some of those bright young people that have just got their PhDs and their advanced degrees in, in uh, computer science, put those side by side with a journeyman uh, cyber tester, and very quickly we can bring them up to speed. So I, I think that uh, we have a similar need for the same kind of people. At the same time, we also need to develop a cadre of cyber defenders. 
that's something that is, does not get enough attention is that uh, we tend to think things go on autopilot and we kind of forget about it, but we have to have those defenders that understand uh, what when, it, when there's an anomalous behavior in a system, they can identify it and they can take the proper action either to isolate the system, notify, or, you know, fix it on the spot. I mean, that's a really important part going forward with our uh, cyber-intensive uh, world. Getting back to your point about uh, getting everybody to live under one roof here, I wonder, is there anything that Apartment is doing or or at least ought to be doing to make sure that the precise things that you're going to be examining during OT are actually addressed way earlier in the acquisition process, maybe even in the solicitation up front? Because right. at least in the traditional way of doing things, by the time you get to OT, fixing cyber problems is pretty hard and pretty expensive. It is. Uh, yes, you're exactly right. So in, in the life cycle of developing software, over 50% of the defects in a software occur during the, ar the architectural development of software. Unfortunately, we, it, we find about 70% of those defects when the software is put into the hands of the operator. And the cost of, of fixing that software once it gets into the hands of the operator is sometimes 500 times more expensive than if you fix it during the architectural development part. And, you know, there's data to show that. Uh, and it's, you know, and that's why when we talk about software and, and defense acquisition, that's why it's so ex expensive because we are finding those problems late in the process rather than find them early in the process. And I believe that if we combine the DT and the OT early and often in the development of the program, we will be able to find those defects early and save a lot of money of trying to eradicate them than waiting to the end. Is that, that combination of DT and OT mainly focused on software, or are you trying to do that across the board? I'm trying to do it across the board. Uh, from, from the perspective of trying to reduce the acquisition lifecycle, uh, sending something from development to the field uh, is taking way too long. We have to think of clever ways to figure out how to reduce the uh, time it takes to get a weapon system out there. You know, like I mentioned before, it's a velocity of relevance. And I'm looking at all kinds of ways to reduce that. Everything from doing testing early and often in this uh, concept that I mentioned, that uh, capability-based uh, T&E, to reducing the, uh, the documentation burden that comes with acquisition also. I, I, this more iterative approach, I, I wonder how it plays in with, with some of the more traditional aspects of DT&E, like uh, OT&E, rather. For example, when you, are, when you are examining the F-35, do you examine space weight power separately at a, at a different event and, and maybe not so continuously as you, as you monitor the cyber aspects of the same program? How do the, how do the two things interplay? Well, we're going to get into, we, we, uh, as soon as we get out of the initial operational test and evaluation portion of the F-35 development, which will happen pretty quickly, we're going to get into a continuous development process, process for the F-35 to continuously improve the aircraft through software and hardware, and we'll be doing that uh, very quick uh, agile acquisition. As a matter of fact, we are looking at ways to do agile software acquisition for the F-35 program. And that will mean that we'll be able to deliver more and more capability uh, quicker 
than we can in the traditional ways. I mean, I, I, I'm, I would, I'm an extreme experimental test pilot from a long time ago, and we were developing airplanes, and one of them like the F-16. When the F-16 came out, it wasn't the perfect airplane. But we kept iterating it and making it stronger and better, and now we have what's called a Block 70 F-16, which is an incredible weapon system, about a thousand times better than when it came out back in the 80s. And that's, that's the same thought process. We're not, we don't build a static weapon system, especially when it comes to software. It continuously improves as the software improves. And, you know, we have these plans for the, uh, for the F-35, which, as you know, is completely defined by software. Mm-hmm. One of the things I wanted to ask you about is, is something you've, you've touched on a little, but it, it gets, one of the issues I've heard sort of among the CIO and CISO communities lately, and I'm heavily paraphrasing here, is that, look, we're doing our best here to get out of a total compliance-based mindset and into a risk management mindset. And, and invariably, an authorizing official is going to accept some level of risk, maybe because of layered defenses, whatever. But then the cyber inspection teams or the OT folks come in with something that's closer to a, a, a zero defect mentality. They're, they're just not thinking about risk acceptance. They don't care what, what, what risk you've accepted. They're flagging any risk as a sign that your system isn't survivable. Are you sympathetic to that line of thinking? Is that a valid complaint or is risk acceptance just not part of OT? Well, it's a, it's a really valid question, uh, but we have to learn how to manage risk. Uh, that's what it comes down to. You know, we're not, you know, when it comes to the putting our warfighters, men and women, into, into harm's way, we're not going to risk their lives uh, uh, without making sure we know what the capabilities are of a weapon system. Mm-hmm. The zero defect uh, capabilities, I don't think we're there. I think we have to... Uh, be able to measure the risk and, and make a good assessment of the risk. Uh, I, I, but, you know, the days of uh, having a zero defect capability, I, I, told, I don't think that's even possible anymore. But let me just add, though, sure. what we do in operational testing is we help quantify uncertainty of the weapon. And by quantifying the uncertainty, we can make a rational decision on how much risk we have at, with that system. Robert Beeler is DOD's Director of Operational Test and Evaluation. He joined us by phone from his office at the Pentagon to talk about the new cybersecurity testing procedures he just issued, along with some of the bigger changes he's trying to make to the department's test process for software. Another quick break here. We'll stick with acquisition policy when we get back, including some of the steps the department says it's trying to take to make the procurement process both more transparent and faster. This is on DOD on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 a.m. I'm Jared Servier. Back on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM, this is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. And as I said before the break, we're going to stick with acquisition for the balance of the hour. In the next couple segments, we're going to hear from two senior defense officials about some of the steps the department is taking internally to accelerate the entire process. As we've discussed before, Ellen Lord, the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment, made it one of her first priorities to cut the time the acquisition process takes for major systems roughly in half. The average as of now is about two and a half years. 
For a little more detail on some of the steps DOD's taking to meet that goal, we're going to hear now from Shea Assad, the department's director of procurement and acquisition policy. This is an excerpt from a panel discussion he participated in at the Association of the Army's annual Hot Topic Conference on Contracting. Assad says the department is looking for both speed and transparency. And what does that mean? It just means that we're both on the same playing field, right? The government and the companies are both on the same playing field. They have the same set of facts and that they're dealing in an environment where they're now trying to use those facts with their set of skills that they have and negotiate a position that's fair and reasonable. Uh, we have a lot of situations where we only get part of the story. And I'll give you a recent example. I won't say the program, but it was a major Army program. Uh, it was in excess of $2 billion. And to the Army's credit, uh, you know, they, they kind of held firm, and this was the negotiating team. This is the, the talent I'm talking about. You know, they insisted that they get the information. And it wasn't that they needed thousands of pages of information. They just needed the right information. Right? And to give an example, um, a major subcontractor right, who might be uh, working on this program for, let's say, five or six or seven years on an annual basis under a firm fixed price. And so the contracting officer said, well, how are they doing? And the company said, well, that's a firm fixed price. And the contracting officer said, what does that have to do with anything? How can you take the position that their actual experience isn't relevant to what it is that they're selling us? And so the company refused to get the data, so the Army just stood there and said, well, when you get us the data, we'll get this done. And, uh, you know, the, the company made several attempts. They went to ASALT. They went everywhere trying to get to uh, a four-star. The four-star threw them out. Uh, and and basically said, no, we've got a contracting officer. Go deal with her. You know, she knows what she's asking for. So ultimately, the company finally came to provide the information, and they reached a settlement. Now, it was one of those nightmare. It took a year and a half to get done. But what happened as a result of that? The light clicked on with the company. They realized, you know what, if... We could have gotten this a lot quick, done a lot quicker if we simply had been transparent. So what did the Army do? They had a follow-on multi-year contract to negotiate with that company. And they called me, and they said, wait, we think we can use the data we presently have to negotiate the follow-on multi-year right now. So in three days, without a proposal, they settled up on the follow-on five-year, multi-year. And that's where we're going, what we're saying to our contracting officers. And it's going to be a huge change for industry is, look, we want proposals in 30 to 60 days. We presently have major weapon systems that there's one that's 21 months to get a proposal. I don't know how you can do anything quickly if it takes 21 months to get a proposal. So where we're going what we've asked Congress to allow us to do is to tailor the TINA requirement. And what we want to be able to do is sit down with a company and say, okay, let's talk about whatever it is we're buying. 
tell me about the information that you have, the actual information or the, the data that you have, the estimates that you have related to this particular product. And let's agree on that data set as being the cost and pricing data that you're going to have to certify. Because where we want to go is get companies out of the mode of saying, well, I got a $750,000 TINA threshold, or now it's $2 million, and therefore, you know, I've got to go get all this cost of pricing data, and it's going to take me months to do. No, what we're trying to say is, no, we actually want a proposal in 30 to 60 days. It's going to be a huge change set in culture for these companies because they're going to have to take some risk. And they're not used to taking risk. Companies are not, uh, we talk about us being risk averse. The major companies with which we deal are far more risk averse. Right? They just, and they have to be to a certain degree. They've got to report their earnings to the penny on a quarterly basis. So I, I can understand where they're coming from. But we're going to have to work together because we want to radically change the way we're doing business. The TINA threshold change from 750k to $2 million would change 900 days to 885. We want to make 900 days be 60 or be 90. So one of the other things that we're doing is we're telling our contracting officers, OK, we want you to negotiate the instant years by. And if you think you got a pretty good deal, we want you to go negotiate options right then for the follow-on two years. And oh, by the way, we want you to put unspecified FMS requirement options in those contracts. And so the Army did that on two different programs, the same organization that negotiated a multi-year in three days. So it can be done. The tools are there to do it. It takes... PEOs and PMs to have confidence in their teams. It takes talented teams, and it takes companies who are willing to take some risk. Right? And to Dr. Jetty's uh, comments about FPI, that's what enabled them to do it. Right? There was a degree of risk that we were asking the company to take and the government was taking, so we're sharing in that risk. And, and we're pretty comfortable that the company's going to do just fine, profitability-wise. Right? And so what we're trying to do is create an environment that enables companies to move quickly to submit proposals in 30 to 60 days, quality proposals that we can audit. And we're going to commit to them. You submit your proposal in 60 days, we're going to get it audited in 60 days, and we're going to get to the table quickly. Right? We can't be asking them to do things in 30 to 60 days and take a year. Can't do it. That's Shay Assad, DOD's Director of Procurement and Acquisition Policy, speaking at the Association of the U.S. Army's annual Hot Topic Conference on Contracting. One last break here, and when we come back, Dr. Bruce Jetty, the Assistant Secretary of the Army for Acquisition, Logistics, and Technology. This is on DOD on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm Jared Serbiu. Thanks for listening to federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. As we wrap up this week's show on DOD acquisition, a few more thoughts from another senior defense official on the steps the military is taking to make the process operate more quickly. This is Dr. Bruce Jetty, the Assistant Secretary of the Army for Acquisition, Logistics, and Technology. He also spoke at the Association of the U.S. Army's annual Hot Topic Conference on Contracting. 
Our objective is to take these authorities and the contracting authorities and try and leverage them to get things done faster and better. We want uh, to make it a much more coherent relationship between the Army side of things and the contractor side of things. And there are some specific areas in my discussions with various members of the community uh, that they would like some uh, us to consider and we want them to consider. So I'm going to try and touch on a few of those. We all know that there are some issues we need to deal with in the way that we do contracting uh, on both sides. Now, one of the benefits you have is that I come from your side of the table. A short time ago, I was running my own company. Um, I didn't it was a small enough company that I didn't have a, well, I did have lawyers, but they were really expensive and I had to pay them. So, so if I could read, learn to read contracts, then that meant I didn't have to pay a lawyer to read the contract or to help me write up my, uh, my responses to proposals, uh, RFPs, and those type of things. So I became fairly adept at understanding uh, contracts. Um, way back in the old days, I was... Um, a, a, a three, and and as a three, I would I would often do something called go to graph. Uh, you got to go to graph. If I'm going to go to graph, I start my start my office. And I say, how do I get the brigade to graph in here? Okay, first thing I got to do is I've got to go attend the range conference. The second thing I have to do is I need to start planning my logistics strings. Who's going to go there? How many trucks can the trucks get inspected so they can get through the the fire points? Da 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 da. So. You, for any of you that are operationally oriented, you'd understand the sequence. And I think that what we need to do is apply some of those same type of approaches to, is, uh, to the methodology by which we look at contracting. We need to put some things first and some things last in our, in our efforts in contracting. And you're going to hear me talk briefly about intellectual property as an example. We tend to think about it at the end, not at the beginning. Yet it causes us so much trouble at the end because we don't think about it at the beginning. And I know that from being on, on your side of the table, intellectual property and our rights within the government uh, are critically important to making sure that you stay, uh, uh, stay competitive in your area. Uh, but it's as important on our side of the table in making sure that we retain control of our destiny. Um, so um, what, what, are, what are a couple of direct issues that I'm – because want to make sure I touch on all of these um, kind of some of these issues where where are we what what are our what's our thinking on some of these issues with respect to contracting uh, at least at the assault level uh, the first thing is we're we're beginning to take a look at how we've been doing contracting at the for the PMs and PEOs so the first thing that happens is you put together your acquisition strategy and you put together a contracting concept the general way we've attacked that is, okay, this is going to be a cost plus, cost plus fixed fee, firm fixed price, et cetera, et cetera. The problem is frequently the work is not broken out that way. The work often is 80% predictable, deliver this, and then 20% not so predictable, and that's where the risk all is buried. <clears throat> However, in the past what we've done is we've put, looked at it as a single contract. Do one thing. Now, I know that General Simpson's sitting here going, holy cow, I got enough contracts actions to go through. He only has about 210,000 a year to do. So coming up with a better idea of having more contracts uh, is, is uh, not, uh, not probably uh, top on his list of things that he needs to do. Uh, but I will tell you, I'm supporting him and seeing if we can make this easier in general for him. But I want our contracting people to look at 
or, or I, I want our PMs to work with their contracting people to look at this issue of what's the right contract mix for the work that we're trying to get done. We contract for all of you out there to do work for us. It may have multiple delivery issues, but we put it all into one contract. And, and we tend to go to the most flexible contract. The most flexible contract tends to be a cost plus contract. So what so what happens is if you're if it's a large enough contract and it's kind of cost plus related, everything goes on a cost plus. And and so all of a sudden we have a loss of control over the delivery of those things which may just be straightforward deliverables. We take a hundred percent of the risk. When frankly, as an industry, former industry guy. You know, we had some responsibilities. I was supposed to deliver you lug nuts on, on, on uh, uh, you know, the first of the year. Well, you know, if I don't, it's cost plus. I'll just drive over a little bit, and that's okay. We'll, get, we'll catch up on it because probably something else will fall apart. I mean, I'm not being too cynical uh, because I've seen both sides of that. And the end state is that that all ends up government-related risk. And so I think the only reasonable and fair thing is let's separate out the risk those things that you know you and, and you you want to you can deliver better faster smarter let's negotiate out those pieces into a, a firm fixed price contract now there's one contract i kind of like which is a fixed price incentive fee i don't mind if you make a profit i think you should make a profit i know there are not everybody agrees with me but i would be happy to to assemble a, a firm fixed price contract in a manner which you know, if you deliver an agreed-upon product at an agreed-upon time or earlier, you get to keep the money. Okay. Now, if you get you don't do it, then you start eating the money, and and uh, uh, that that's how everybody else out here. We've got five thousand companies that sell to the government generally. Okay, and I I I've told everybody this. I know because. I'm not allowed to own any, have any financial relationships with them. So they give me literally a list, and it's about 5,000 companies long. The rest of the world is built by everybody else. Having done commercial work as well, one of the critical areas there is if I'm supposed to deliver something, we have to negotiate out what that deliverable is. If I can't deliver it in the negotiated, uh, what, what I negotiated, I start eating that. Again, Dr. Bruce Jetty, the Assistant Secretary of the Army for Acquisition, Technology, and Logistics, speaking at a recent event hosted by the Association of the U.S. Army. Just before that, we heard from Shay Assad, the Director of Defense Procurement and Acquisition Policy. And if you missed our earlier conversation with Robert Beeler, DOD's Director of Operational Test and Evaluation, we'll post this week's full program at federalnewsradio.com slash on DOD. You can also find our show in podcast form. Subscribe on Podcast One or on Apple Podcasts. That's it for this week's edition of On DOD. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. I'm Jared Serbu. So long. You've been listening to On DOD with Federal News Radio DOD reporter Jared Serbu. If you missed any part of this program, you can hear the entire show or any of our weekly programs anytime at federalnewsradio.com. On DOD, only on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com.